Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome once again to Spin the Rally Pod, a bonus episode of Spin the Rally Pod. Normally we come into your little podcast provider on a Tuesday, but today is not a Tuesday, as I'm sure you're aware, if you're listening to this on the day it has come out. But with Safari Rally Kenya around the corner, that's just about as good an excuse as any to do something a little bit different. I am your host today, Luke Barry, and I am joined. I am delighted to see, actually already from Kenya, George Donaldson. George, how are you? Good evening, Luke. I've never been better, and I'm back in Kenya. First full day in Kenya. Happy to say that uh, everything is usual here in Kenya. All the all the people are friendly and lovely. Uh, the weather, of course, is uh, we're in winter here for Kenya, or they're sort of winter. They don't really have a winter season on the equator, but um, it's the sort of winter. So it's cloudy and only about 21, 22 degrees so for some of our colleagues, namely David Evans. He would love it here at this time of year. <laughs> uh, there are showers and rain. There was none in Nairobi today, but I believe there was showers up at Lake Navasha today. Uh, very, very generally sort of wet, but no big rains. But thunderstorms threatened every day. So if they strike at the right or wrong time around enough of the route, we could actually end up having a bit of a wet safari. I would like it for every stage. But anyway, I'm happy to be here <laughs> and um, it's just it's just gorgeous. Absolutely. We, shall, we will indeed be doing a full preview episode for the safari rally this year in the coming days as well. So don't worry, we'll have plenty of information on this year's rally, I do have to say as well, just from my end, it's Thursday evening we're recording this. 22 degrees is actually what it is for me right now in Scotland, George. So you, I'm sure you're aware, you only flew away a couple of days ago, but you're missing some quite extraordinary weather for Scotland at this yeah. time of year. It's all very yeah. bizarre. No sign of rain here. All no. blue skies and sunshine, even at this well, time of night. I am loving it. And of course, it, uh, in summer in Scotland, it doesn't get dark until like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. Still, you could still read a newspaper sitting out in the garden at 11 o'clock at night the other night in my at, at, uh, up, up a little bit further north than, than, than Luke. So a little bit more daylight, another another few seconds of daylight uh, every day, the further north you go. And uh, and here where you come and it feels like summer, it gets dark it, it, at, at 6.30 in the evening. It's perfectly light. And you think, well, it kind of looks like it's maybe getting towards the end of the day. And by 6.45, 15 minutes later, it's pitch black. So night falls very, very quickly here. And it's one of the unique and amazing things that's quite hard to get used to. It's a little bit easier this time of year because the sun isn't really out. It's behind the cloud, but it still it goes from uh, perfectly light to perfectly dark in 15 minutes. That's always a bit of a shocker. I love well, there you it. There Yeah. We know you do. I think there's, there's lots of rallies on the camp. Well, George loves any rally, as we all know, but I think Safari really does have a special place in your heart. And it's why we've, well, it's not why we've got you on, we'd have you on anyway, but you are the perfect man to talk about some Safari stories from the past, given A, your affinity with the event, and B, just how many times you've been here. I'm going to put you on the spot with this question because you might not know, but 2023, you're obviously back again. It's your third in a row since Kenya's returns to the World Championship calendar, but do you actually yeah. know how many safaris you've done now? It must I be. I think I think this lot. is I think this is twenty one. It's either twenty <laughs> or twenty one now. Um, wow! And uh, let me think: it's seven, eight. Uh, so probably probably about uh, 12, uh, 10, 11, 11, 12, Let me think: ten of them were full classics, um, and then up until. Up until um, 1990, sorry, 2003 was the last one, of course, that we did. And it, it was already getting quite a shortened route, although the sections were still big. They were still full on. So up until 1996, so I started in 86 to 
95, they were all full-length safaris going right round the country, servicing wherever you wanted. And then in 96, it came uh, service park areas. So you, you had basically service zones and service parks, basically one service park a day. And the rally still moved around the country. And it still went full length of a petrol tank on the car, uh, a fuel tank on the car. But uh, it became foreshortened at that point. And then now we've come back to this safari rally, which, um, honestly speaking, is in, in if you look at it on a map, you think, what is that? It's nothing. But honestly speaking, when you go out and you drive the sections, somehow it still feels, I don't know how the organisers have managed it, how Kenya has managed it, but somehow you feel like you're doing a full big safari. Um, it's amazing. And the, the longest section we have now is 30 kilometres. Uh, back in the day, the shortest section would have been considerably longer than 30 kilometres. The shortest section <laughs> might, have been, might have been 70 or 80 k's. Again, the longest going up to 170, 180 k's with refuel in the middle. You stopped and refueled at times. You certainly had the option for refueling in the middle of stages if you felt you needed it. Tire change. Emergency service, open road rallying it was, right up until 1996. Then it changed. See, this then just blows changed. my mind. I'm sorry to cut across you, but this, mm. obviously I'm, I'm for full disclosure, I'm 25 years old at the minute. So what's scary about that is George has been to almost as many safaris as I've been alive, <laughs> which is mental. Yeah. But that means obviously I was born in 97. So I'm the same age as the World Rally Car, which is a nice little random pub quiz fact for oh, anybody that's if a, I ever that's make a... it and become right. famous but we've got to me just thinking about, and i've obviously i've read all the stories and, and you see archive footage but just for me and i'm sure there's so many fans listening to this that want to have the same experience as i want to sort of and i'm lucky enough to talk to you directly about but i just want to try and experience and take myself back to and i don't want to use the phrase the good old days because that's dangerous but the safaris of years gone by because they were and I know lots of rallying now compared to then isn't the same. We know that, so many reasons for it. But there's just something about the safari and the way it used to be, which is quite remarkable and incredible. And it's scarcely believable now if you compare to what a rally is to what you would get away with maybe in the 80s and early 90s. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm looking at a map here from, I think, I think it's... Um... I think it's 1991 or 92. I've got the whole map book, the whole Toyota map book from the whole rally. And, and here's the thing. Six legs in the rally. <laughs> six legs. <laughs> it wasn't six days because some of the legs ran at night. You know, they ran through the night. Um, and sometimes, you know, they just stopped. The rally stopped for four hours, maybe five hours, and then continued again. And this rally ran from uh, as far north as the, well, above the Cherangani Hills, uh, above a place called Kapanguria in the north. Um, that was on the northwest side. On the northeast side, it ran up as far as Maralal. The, the 1991 actually went further north. So I think this must be a 92 map. So it's a way above Mount Kenya, way north of Mount Kenya, up into this, up into the sort of the, the scrub desert. You know, not, not sand desert, but the scrub desert in, in the north of Kenya basically out of that subtropical zone that, that we that we currently sit in. So you're coming out of all the trees and the beautiful, um, lush uh, greenery that we normally see in Kenya up into that scrubland. So it went, and, and all the way down to the coast, all the way down to Mombasa and up to, uh, gosh, what's the name of the place? I can't remember the name of the, see, Malindi. Malindi was the seaside resort. Uh, that it, not seaside, It's not really a seaside resort, it's just a... Um, a town um, just just short of Melindy, Killifey, Killifey, uh, the old Killifey Bridge and the Killifey Ferry. That you, if you go back into safaris in the eighties and nineties, so the sorry the the early the late seventies and mid up to actually up to late eighties, there was a ferry crossing and the rally cars used that ferry crossing. It only took eight cars at a time. I can't imagine what it was <laughs> like. I can't. There must have been a control either side of it, but um, you'd hope so. Yeah, that could be so chaos. Gonna... So six six legs, and, and let, let me tell you what: how many controls there were on the rally? How many how many time controls? So like actual speed time controls. These are not these are not just like check-in points. I think we were at a hundred and well, no, that's not true. I'm, I'm not sure. We had a hundred and five service points wow. on the rally. So now we have one service point. <laughs> one hundred and five service points. I mean, these are proper service points. You also had. You also had um, 
chase cars and you had helicopters with mechanics in them as well. So you had all sorts. Amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. It's incredible. And, yeah, it blows my mind. Blo- as I said before, this, it blows my mind. Uh, yeah, I should scan this map and we should put it onto the website. What do you think? It's a lot of pages. Well, I, <laughs> there are 20, 20 pages or 20 or 30, 25 pages, and I think there are in the map book. It's massive. I, I said this to George, and, and I think George is aware of it, but I think uh-huh. it's the classic scenario of whenever you're living something or you have something, you don't realise just what you've got. I am yeah. sure George's loft is a treasure. In fact, I'm not sure. I know it is. It's a treasure chest of rallying yeah. gold. There's so many things you have up there. And one yeah. day we need to we need to take a visit, take the video camera and just look through everything my, that you've got. My wife would welcome if if you came to my house and took it away. Honestly, she hates it. <laughs> she hates the fact I kept stuff. And and I, I actually went up into the attic. I was in, uh, obviously, I was in uh, Dirtfish. Um, uh, it was, I was in the northwest uh, with them just at the end of the end of May, and I, I took across a suitcase full of old rally clothing from to going back as far as eighty seven, eighty eight, all the way through the nineties and all the way through the early noughties. I had a massive amount of team clothing, and I gave it all to the well. I gave I think about thirty different garments to the guys there. To hopefully it was to, to be distributed amongst all the team that's there um but I, I, I somehow when I, when I left there it was still all sitting in Nate's office <laughs> don't think he'd given <laughs> any of it his office is lying open for any of the dirtfish crew that that are not aware it's there I'm sure you can go and filch whatever you want it's there to be filched guys anyway yeah we've, we've, we've rumbled Nate if he has been trying to hide that and hoard it for no, himself no, sorry was, Nate we've he rumbled was, you he was, he, was sharing, he was sharing it with everyone Nate's such a lovely guy he would never do such a thing he is he would never do he such is. a thing yeah anyway. now George obviously at the minute you, you're coming to Safari this year helping Colin Clark and our cameraman Elliot Barnard with our coverage of the event which of course will be available via Dirtfish Live Centre next week but when you first came here and I think you just said it and correct me if I'm wrong with this but 19... 19- 86 working for toyota give us an insight into what that was like coming to your first safari and how that experience was well it was it was remarkable i got a phone call well i got i got got invited to come in november the year before and could i come for the recce and and help with the recce and the test and the build-up this was group b the group b uh, toyota celica uh, uh, twin cam turbo rear wheel drive and they, they'd won Safari Rally in 1984 and 1985. So they were going to go for the hat trick on this occasion. And I actually flew directly from the end of Swedish Rally. It was my first, no, sorry, it was my second flyaway event for, for Toyota. I'd, I'd done Ivory Coast the year before. And because I'd not screwed up and I'd done everything I was meant to do and said yes to doing everything, <laughs> they'd let me come to Kenya, which was like such an amazing treat. as an event I wanted to come to since I first discovered what rallying was. And uh, I think I was born wanting to come to this rally, I'll be honest with you, because it seemed to be <laughs> the biggest and most amazing adventure. And of course, when I arrived, I, I came down with two Swedish mechanics that had been around for years and had been coming out with, even before, I think, Toyota, in, in the case of one of them. And they were telling me great stories about the event. And, and, I, and I felt then like you feel now, I'm listening to the great stories of these old events, you know. But actually, I was in for a treat because actually the rally hadn't changed at all in the previous 25 years. It was, okay, it used to go into Tanzania and, and Uganda, but that's just more of the same. No no disrespect to those countries, but, but the, you know, it's just the same type of rallying. It's, it's brilliant, it, absolutely amazing. So, um, we, and we were still doing, you know, six legs. We were doing a five-day event um, and you basically, you might have seen bed once or twice for a few hours in those five days. I mean, that was just brilliant. So, yeah, so, so I, f- <laughs> I flew down. So we, we, as I recall, we, um, yeah, we, we flew out of Stockholm down to uh, into Switzerland. So that would have been Zurich or where I think it was Zurich we flew into. I suspect it was. And uh, we're meant to connect with a flight, a Swiss air flight down to, down to, to, to Kenya but the flight was delayed technical we were on the airplane taxiing out when it got bumped back and we had to spend the night in uh, night in Switzerland so that's when I've sat in the bar with them for for a few hours more than a few hours probably 
on I think a Sunday a Sunday it must have been no a Monday evening. Um, it was a Monday evening because it was the day after the Swedish rally that we. No, that's not quite right. No, because we I drove straight from the finish to the airport. I had to actually have my suitcases all packed. No, so it must have been a Sunday night, um, and then we sat in. That's the, incredible. In, yeah, we sat in the bar. It was amazing. My my service crew had to drive like the wind to catch the flight. So that <laughs> British service crew in, in a British registered car driving from Karlstad to Stockholm, pretty well as fast as we could, and and we got there. We got there in time, and uh, and and uh, I got the flight. Met met the two Swedes, hard as nails. The pair of them were they were great, uh, and they told me stories uh, to turn your hair white, in the in the bar <laughs> in the hotel in in uh, in Zurich, and then we uh, and then we flew the next day down to Kenya, and just had the most amazing time. I was down here, I think, for at that point, I think I was down here for eight weeks, eight or nine weeks. Well, that, well, the rally. well that's the that's the key thing I wanted to touch on because you said mm. this to me in sort of private conversations about how long and how many months a year you would spend in Kenya. Cause it wasn't like now when you can't do any testing on location here, you could do as much testing as you wanted. And it made complete sense, obviously to test your car in, in the places that would be competing. So you were part of the team that would essentially go through all of that testing before the arduous rally got underway. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, and it was just, it was just exactly like it sounds. It was absolutely amazing. So we, we, it was, it's a free for all. Um, everybody expects to see rally cars uh, in in Kenya, between uh, honestly between at that time between November and Easter the next year, uh, there would be rally car rally teams there testing Lancia, Toyota, Ford uh, as well at that point. Uh, so it was quite common, but Toyota were one of the big players. Toyota um, had been rallying with Uwe Anderson since nineteen I think seventy three was it seventy seventy two or seventy three I think seventy two maybe RAC rally was one of Uwe Anderson's first events and then he got a contract with Toyota and persuaded them to invest more and allow him to build a team with them and then you know it built slowly over the years they got a victory uh, very early on on the Thousand Lakes with a Corolla actually and Hannah Mikola and I think that, that might have been the nineteen seventy four. Um, Thousand Lakes Rally, seventy-three. EWRC would have it. I should. I, EWRC would I, have I, it. I will, have check. At it. I will we'll, check. We won't look at it as we talk, but I'm sure our listeners can can check that. Somebody out. can correct us. Yes. It might even have been seventy-five, but it certainly wasn't seventy-six. Uh, but it was one of those mid mid uh, early to mid seventies, Thousand Lakes rallies. Hanny Mikula won, and what an amazing character he was. Um, the privilege of meeting him more than more than once or twice. Uh, but he um, he won Thousand Lakes again. That just gave Toyota the lift, and then you know I guess they had limited budgets and you know the, the way they homologated cars. Anyway, so the team was of course always looking for events they could do well on, and and uh, Toyota were keen on the African market, and Uva said we could concentrate on that. Um, so we did, and then through the the late seventies and early eighties, the the team started to build up experience Ivory Coast. And it was just, I think it was, I don't think they came to Kenya for a couple of years. I can't quite remember. Again, we'd have to look back on our EWRC for that. But the Ivory Coast was where the car really got built. And I mean, initially they'd, they'd built a good tough car, went to Ivory Coast, the car fell apart. So they went back again and it fell apart again. And then they went testing and it fell apart. And finally they started to build up a tough car. And then they got to homologate uh, and they got some results. And the Japanese uh, um, um manufacturer the, the, the guys back in japan decided to uh, to invest more so they built the group b car and they built the group b car for africa now this car came out after the audi quattro had come out and the audi quattro was of course winning everything in the you know the early early 80s i think the the this the twin cam turbo i think its first events were in 83 uh, i believe it was 83 and then 84 Safari Rally was its first Safari Rally, 1984. And it came out and it won first time out. And that, that, that win, oddly enough, so first time first time there, but the team had been building up over the years and, and it had respect. And it was Nini Russo. Is, I remember seeing a, a, a video of that, like one of Barry Hinchcliffe's famous films of Safari Rally, 1984. And... Um, but uh, Nini Russo at Lancia is being interviewed, and he said, "Who do you think the big threat is? You know, is it Hanu in the in the Quattro, or 
or whoever it would, whoever else it was, I can't remember all the names. Ari Vatnan was was of course there, and whatever he was driving. And Nini said, he said, I think Bjorn in the Toyota is the biggest threat. And of course, they would have known that car was built in safari spec. Uh, it could do 140 miles an hour and it would pull 140 miles an hour in fifth gear up a hill on gravel. It, it was so fast. So we had high speed. And this is a high speed event. It was a high speed event. It was amazing. So Toyota built a car strong, very simple, very tough, massively reliable, um, simple car with massive top speed. And we blew everyone away. And uh, you've got to remember that car also won New Zealand rally against four-wheel drives and, and Lancia's, Lancia 037s. And that, yeah. that, that very, very simple, you know, f for want of a better word, a rather, a rather big and heavy Mark II Escort is what it was, turbocharged, uh, was, uh, was the car. That, that, so it did, it did have other victories, but basically they focused on Kenya. And, you know, Toyota chose to, you know, they have their, their reputation for toughness and reliability, which they still have. They still trade on that. And, and that's why winning in Safari was so important for, the, for the, the, the manufacturer. It was a massive deal and became a massive deal because we did so well. Yeah. And I was, I was a small part of that. Of course, well, well, as uh, you they, mentioned... So, sorry, George. No, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, as you mentioned, that 1984 debut was Bjorn did, in fact, win the rally. 85, yep. it was Yuha Kanker, and 86, the, the year event. you were there, it was a second 1-2 in a row as well, not yep. just a win, but a 1-2. Bjorn Voldegaard right. and Lars-Erik Torf, 1-2. and two. So if you can, and I know I'm stretching on, on memories from quite a few years ago, it's sad to say, but what what was the atmosphere like in that team when you joined after having won the last two events? Was there this sort of expectation? I don't, I don't want to use the word pressure, but just this expectation that Toyota would deliver another victory in Safari? Uh, no, I can't say that I recall that at all. I mean, we weren't... I mean, Bjorn was an was unbelievably uh, diligent tester. You know, like, I mean, he would go out and he want to test everything. And I remember... Now, now Pirelli... The Pirelli guys will not thank me for this memory. But... Um, <laughs> uh, but but it's, actually, it's actually quite a positive story about Pirelli. Um, uh, just before the rally, so we'd I'd been here about you know by that time six weeks, and we'd got a new a new batch of tires had arrived, um, and uh, I think I think I drove back. So we'd, we were testing down at Taita Hills, which is about three hundred kilometers south of Nairobi, um, and we were testing in the Taita Hills area and around the Rukanga Loop to the south of Taita Hills, which is is a really rough little loop. It's, it's hard, it's tough. And um, sorry, if you can hear the rustling of papers, it's me looking through the maps here to catch all the names <laughs> of all the fabulous places. Yes, yeah, so That's we're down fantastic. at Taita Hills, uh, Voy, uh, and the, that, that loop, that Rukanga loop, quite a short section. That would have been one of the, you know, uh, four, uh, 50 or 60 kilometre loops, but a rough little section. And then it went straight, it didn't actually stop at that section. It then went across the road and went up into the Taita Hills and ran through the tight hills, which was really tight and technical. Um, and then it would finish, it would finish up towards the uh, place called Mactaw. And then you, then you, then you had a short road section about 40 kilometers and it was road. It was a gravel road, very, very fast gravel road out to a place called Taveta. And then you went, then you went into another section north up around the top of Kilimanjaro and into Amboseli. And you'd maybe get a small... Anyway, sorry, I, I digressed. We were testing in that area. That's the bottom line. And we there was a, a new... The, the, the rally tyres, this is about uh, eight days before the rally, nine days before the rally, uh, the, the, the batch of rally tyres had been shipped down. They came air freight uh, for Pirelli. And I was sent up to Nairobi from... Uh, there was only a small group of people there. One guy in Nairobi looking after the workshop, a job that later became mine. And uh, and a very small test team. I think we were only. I think at that time we were only three mechanics. So it was the two Swedes and myself had been there all that time, and some engine engineers came in and out. But that was about it. And and the and the the, the you know the, the main engineer we had, uh, the vent engineer was was a, a guy called Gert Pfeiffer Pepper. Uh, he would he would of course have been there by this point for this latter stage of testing. Anyway, um, I went up, got the tires so all the way up to Nairobi, got the tires. 
and I think I drove up at night, never never a smart thing to do, but I was happy enough to do it. <laughs> got the tyres and then drove down the next morning, so I probably didn't sleep much. Um, got the tyres and I had, I think I just had two sets mounted. So I had eight eight tyres in the back of this uh, van. It was just a bit of high ace van. Uh, put the tyres on the car, uh, went out and, and tested them. And so I think we, we I remember we were sitting at Voy Lodge, or, well, not Voy Lodge, Voy Petrol Station. There's a road runs uh, west towards uh, Tanzania, the main road into into Tanzania at that time, through a place called Tiveta, I already mentioned it. Um, uh, and you, you ran south, and the road south down to this uh, Rukanga Loop, which was quite a rough bit of road, that's where Bjorn wanted to test these tyres. He felt he could get quite a few runs of everything. Drove down the road uh, to a place called Mwangu, and... Uh, the, noticed the vibration in the car, got out and inspected the tyres and drove back up the road. Now, I hasten to add, he would have been driving up the road at... He would, he would do those roads at rally speeds. You always did it at rally speeds. You were allowed to. There was no speed limit for rally cars. It was suspended for rally cars in Kenya. That law is probably still on the statutes, but it was only for Safari Rally and it was only during the time that the teams were there. Um, and he drove back up the road. And bearing in mind that car could do would happily sit at 245 kph. That's that, that was its top speed, which you could pull on gravel up a hill, as I said. It, it, it could have even used a longer gear. Um, came back up the road, and by the time he got back to us, the tyres were falling apart. The, 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 it was like the rubber had turned to, to mush. Um, and so we fitted another set of tyres, and exactly the same happened to them. We only had two sets, so we destroyed them both. So it was a big discussion. We, 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 we went into the Void Lodge. It was very, very hard to phone anywhere at that time. Um, and it was very hard to get a line out of Kenya. But we phoned. We, uh, I think it was Fred Gallagher that finally got on the phone. Or maybe it was Gert Pfeiffer. Big, big discussion as much as you could have a big discussion on the phones because you never keep a connection for very long at that time. Um, anyway, it turned out, George, uh, can you just take those tyres back up to Nairobi, get them taken off the rims and take them out to the airport? They're going back to... Uh, they're going back to Pirelli. They want to see what's happened to them. So we sent them back. And um, uh, about, about I mean, so I, 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 I drove up. So that was, this was at lunchtime on the day. So I'd driven up and down to Nairobi. I drove back up to Nairobi, um, like before lunchtime. I'd driven back up to Nairobi. So I'd have gotten about, probably, it's about a three and a half hour drive. Got back in, got the tyres off the rim. The guys were ready to, to get them off the rim, the rims got them out to the airport and they were shipped back. Next morning, Pirelli have got those tyres. Uh, 24 hours after we've received them, they're back in Italy and uh, they're wanting to know what they were what they were like. Oh, and that, the other instruction I was got, I was told to take them to the air freight terminal and make sure they went on the flight. And the air freight guys, I remember them saying, no, this isn't, this is, we, we, we're, we can't guarantee it. I said, they've got to go. I said, could I take them as luggage if I buy a ticket? Uh, yes, you could. But let's try the freight. So I was just about I was just about on a flight on my way to Italy <laughs> uh, to take those because it was so important to get them back. Bjorn insisted that these went back to Pirelli because he thought there was something dreadfully wrong. He could feel that the construction wasn't right. And all he'd driven was all he'd driven down a, a very fast tarmac road. He could tell that they weren't right. Anyway, back to Pirelli. Pirelli opened up the tires. It turns out that. One of the layers, one of the, and there are many construction layers in tyres, as everybody knows. I mean, there are literally dozens and dozens of layers. And Pirelli tyres uh, at that time, as they are now, are very, very sophisticated tyres. They're some of the most sophisticated tyres in the world, if not right up there at the, at the front. And it turns out that the, the guy that had, uh, if you imagine that the, building these bespoke tyres, it's like an architect's drawing the way that they're constructed. And it turns out the engineers that had been, or the construction engineers that had been laying up all the tyres had made a mistake and they'd, they had put the layers, some of the layers in the wrong order. And that's what had happened with these tyres. So we had, we had 600 tyres delivered to Nairobi that, that previous day and they all had to be replaced and the rally was in 10 days time. <laughs> and Pirelli got all the tyres made again and um, shipped down by air again, all of them. Wow. All of them, yeah. 
that's some effort. <laughs> Six hundred times. Very, very impressive. Because you know there would be absolutely. Bes- this is not machine construction. It's bespoke construction, I guess. Anyway, they got us a whole new set of tires down, and that was beyond the detail. And then we got the tires. You know, we got we got the first batch of those tires about seven or eight days later, and the the recce was pretty well. They were into the last little pass of the recce, and again, I was still on the recce at that point. And somebody came out with the tires, and then and I think we had about three or four sets at this point. And beyond, you know, I think we literally ran round Mount Kenya twice on those tires, on that route. I mean, we just wow. beat the hell out of them to make sure they were perfect. And that was Bjorn. You know, he didn't need to, he didn't look for a test driver, he didn't want anyone else to do it, he would do it, thanks very much. That was it. End of. The guy was just solid gold. You know, just the most amazing character and the most diligent of all test drivers and uh, worked himself very, very hard. His internal car equipment, I, I, I can remember that so clearly. About two days before the rally, Bjorn and, and, and they'd ha- they had finished the recce by this point and they were doing PR duties and there was pre-start stuff to do. There was pre-art, pre-start cocktail evenings and we, even in, in a lowly mechanic such as myself got invited to these things. It was wonderful. And, and Bjorn would be at these things. But then when he wasn't there, he was in the workshop. And, you know, you, 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 you carried equipment in case it was wet and you had it prepared for your car. Sometimes you took it out, but you generally ran with it in the car. And Bjorn would, you know, you'd have you'd have uh, thirty meter sections of steel rope and a and a high speed winch uh, for for pulling yourself out of a ditch if you got stuck. And you had all sorts of straps and shackles. And Bjorn used to sort it all out himself, clean it all up, oil it, paint it, lube it, whatever. And he wound everything up himself, tied it off himself with tie wraps made sure his own tie wraps were there and he would put a spare set of tie wraps. He would he would put that in his tool bag or strap it to the with a bit of tape that doubled over so he could get it off quickly, but it wouldn't fall out in an accident so that he knew he could get it quickly if he needed it, just because he knew it. And just that level of diligence and detail that Bjorn Waldegard exercised is why he won why and why Toyota won so many safari rallies. Um just amazing, absolutely amazing uh, character and an amazing discipline uh, and an amazing talent. I mean, his driving talent, I mean, despite all his diligence, he was basically, he was probably the first Sebastian, if you know what I mean. You know, we, we've yeah. had two fantastic Sebastians through the noughties. Well, Bjorn Waldegard was absolutely a Sebastian. You know, that's a, in fact, the Sebastians were Bjorns. I think that's what we should call them now. <laughs> so, it's, so it's Bjorn Loeb and and Bjorn Auger because you know we, we we should do it in the right order because he was so diligent around Safari Rally, and we tested and tested and tested and he practiced and practiced and when he changed to his co-driver Fred and the first year for that was 1986 when my first year on Safari, Bjorn enjoyed writing the English pace notes so much he thought this was great it was, it was for him it was a, there was more descriptions and more possibilities with his notes. So this was a man in the latter years of his career at this point, you know, probably the last four or five years of his realistic career. Um, uh, and he, he took on, he changed the language of his pace notes. And because he liked doing it so much, they made pace notes for the entire route, including all the road sections. Because uh, as I said, the, wow. road, so the faster you went on the road section and bearing in mind, this was a road race, there was no speed limits. And everyone knew the rally was there and, and the cars ran these wing lights, two wing lights that were always on. People saw them coming. Everyone moved out of the way. It was very diligent. It couldn't be done now, but the population of, of uh, Kenya has, has tripled since the, since the mid to late 80s and early 90s. It has tripled a lot more traffic on the road. But at that time, it was viable. And um, uh, the faster you went on the road section, the faster you could go on the road section safely, the more service time you got. Uh, now, obviously, if you were knocking nine bells out of your car, that wasn't a smart thing to do. But if the car could do it, <laughs> then you, you, basically that's where your service time was. And, um, and the organisers liaised with, with the teams when they were out saying, you know, that road section, is that enough time to service? And, uh, of course, they were asking Toyota. And because Toyota had the fastest car, we were saying, no, no, that road section could be two or three minutes shorter knowing that we could go a bit faster than everyone else, we were robbing them of service time. Yeah. <laughs> so you just, you play every <laughs> time you can, don't you? 
but, but, but all teams did that, you know, and then, and then Nini Russo was undoubtedly going in and arguing with the organisers that, no, that needs to be longer, that needs to be longer. And, of course, the organisers were always, at that time, the organisers were competing against the competitors. That's, what, that's part of the competition was the organisers were trying to beat the competitors, really, and make it as tough for them as they could so they couldn't manage it. So they were even making road sections shorter than we could manage to limit the service. Um, uh, I mean, I, I'm just looking at the, the... So there was 144 time controls on that rally that I'm looking at on this map. 144. Yeah, so yeah. many sections. I mean, 144 time sections. Time sections on the rally. I mean, it was three. It was 3,000 kilometres, I think it was, at that time. The event. That is just huge, crazy. I, huge, I, yeah. I was about to apologise for being quiet on this podcast because I'll, I'll be Sorry. honest with you listeners. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm sitting here... I'm sitting here just soaking all of this in. But to be honest, I've got nothing to apologise for because these stories are wonderful. We want to hear from from George. What I've got next, and I'll be honest, this is quite a, a cliché question for a journalist to ask, so I'm going to apologise in advance, George. But you've obviously won and been around the world with in all sorts of roles with rallying. You've won pretty much all of the rallies there are to win around the world in some capacity. But what does a win in Kenya mean compared to the rest, particularly in this era when you'd put literally months of effort into trying to get that result yeah yeah it was it was absolutely i mean i mean i never went to japan in that era when we were winning i was i was far lower down in the team structure at that point uh, but you know we always had a, a a large number of of manufacturer visits people coming from japan to the event there was a huge amount of weight and kudos in japan for winning safari rally and I think worldwide as well in the WRC, different events had different weights, much as they are now. You know, winning Thousand Lakes Rally has always been a, a massively big deal. Yeah, definitely bigger than definitely bigger than winning in a lot of other events. You know, winning in Monte Carlo is a massive deal. Again, you know, bigger than a lot of other events. But winning in Safari, <laughs> that was another level again. <laughs> that was that was genuinely it, it was. It was, you know, it should have been double points for Safari Rally, and you know what? I, I think, you know, I think, um, I think, I think the world of rally, you know, it, it, everyone's talking about the thing needing a shake up. Okay, double points for Safari Rally. How does that sound? And, and I know it's only the same length as everything else, but my God, it definitely has its challenges. Um, and um, I've I've been learning. Sadly, I've sadly learned today that the the rain that is on all the forecasts and that we're reading. Is although it's although it's uh, what we would call very wet in Scotland, um, the the landscape here just soaks it up. You've yeah. got to remember we're 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 a mile above sea level at this point, and uh, there's a lot of places where there's no rock. It's just earth. It's a mile of earth. It's got an infinite capacity to soak up, <laughs> to soak up moisture. Um, very heavy rain, of course, like anywhere else, does flood, but it actually dries up in a day. And maybe two days maximum, it's all gone and the road's back to usual. So the rain we're having at the moment, at the moment, is not going to make uh, a proper wet safari rally. However, however, mixed into that are thunderstorms. And that's what we've seen the last two years. We've had thunderstorms during the rally, both times over the unbelievably fabulous Sleeping Warrior stage up at uh, just on the south side of of Lake Elementaita, and it's a wonderful stage. I think it's pretty well on the 30 kilometres. It's one of the biggest stages on the rally again. Um, and, uh, well, hopefully we'll see the rain a little bit more widespread generally, and it generally might just be a bit damper. So um, I'm, I'm sure if this was a wet safari rally, if this turned into a wet safari rally this year, I genuinely believe that Carl Tundo or um, Oliver Solberg could win. And I've just, I've just in the rally two cars, yeah. In the rally, I believe the rally two cars could win because a wet safari, a proper wet safari, it becomes very slippery and very difficult. Um, and honestly, you know, having having a hundred horsepower more, having one point five times the horsepower is not going to help you here, even on the fast places, because one point five times nothing is still nothing. There's no traction. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, honestly speaking. Those uh, those are the the rally two cars, R five cars as I like to call them. Uh, they are very very drivable. They are very strong, um, and they're being driven by some quite smart drivers out there. Let's be yep. honest. I mean we've 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 got um, um, got a Polish driver again this year um, that was here last year that won that won rally two last year. Kaito, uh, yeah, Kaito Kaitanovic. Kaito Kaito, yeah. Kaito, Kaito Kaitanovic, he's here. 
um, and uh, obviously Oliver Solberg, who actually had a very, very tough time here last year. It looked like he did really badly. Believe me, he did not do really badly. He had a fantastically brilliant character-building event. Now, that he did. Sound, I, I agree. That, that might sound a little bit derogatory to him, and it's far from it. And he would understand that it's not. Basically, everything crap that could happen happened to him. Everything that could go wrong with the car went wrong for him. If he approaches this rally in the right way and, and the conditions are right, he would be one of my favourites to win. Um, I think in the normal course of things, um, Carl Tundo is also, you know, he, he used to live on these, he, he lived in Lake Navasha for years. He will know all the, and, and the, the area's been rallied extensively. Carl Tundo will know those roads like the back of his hand, but, but the roads here are not like European roads where the road is established over centuries with a road bed and rock carved out of the hill that just expands a little bit. The roads here change remarkably. So his local knowledge of the actual road is not worth much. His understanding of the event and how it goes is huge. So if I was Oliver Solberg, in fact, if I was any WRC driver coming to this event, I would be getting a hold of Carl Tundo, who's a current driver, or Ian Ian um, Ian Duncan. Duncan. And yeah. I would be make I would be buying those guys dinner, and I would be <laughs> bending their ear for every insight they could. And you know, you know who would do that? Bjorn Waldegard would have done that. You know, not that he needed to, but you know, that's but the sort would. of detail we want to go. You'd want to mine every little bit of information out of this so you can understand it. And and Oliver Solberg, I know he's diligent and I know he thinks about things. Uh, at least I really hope I really hope I know him well enough to know that he'd do that because if he sits down, lines up everything that happened to him, all the little causes, all the reasons, all the things he could have he could have done had he realised that was about to happen to mitigate that event. If you stack them up, get them in order in your brain. If your brain's all stacked up, loaded like a magazine of of actions and details and things to avoid and not do and yes do and not do times to do it times not. If you've got yourself preloaded with that going into a difficult wet tricky slippery safari rally you will sail through the event and I can say that with certainty because I watched Bjorn Waldegard do it twice just amazing <laughs> yeah that is, it is yeah. a tantalizing thought to think about the prospect of a rally two car upsetting rally ones and, the, by that. Yeah. and there will be of course more discussion about this year's event in the preview episode which will be out in the coming days but George just to look a little bit Sort of backwards, but also more... No, no, you're all good. Also more uh, globally, I guess. I was doing a little bit of research, Mm -hmm. which I'll be honest, I'll front up, is a little bit rare for me. I tend to try and rely on my anorak brain, but I thought, I want to get this right this time. And I was counting (laughs) the amount of successes that Toyota has had on this event in the past. And I believe this year, if they were to win, it would be a 10th Safari success. And no other manufacturers anywhere near close to that. George, you've been involved in, I think, over half of those victories... So maybe we're asking somebody that's a biased source. I'm not sure. But to put you on the spot, why do you think Toyota has been so successful here? Because even there's so many... You mentioned, obviously, a lot about 86. You were there winning a lot with the Celica GT4 in the 90s. Obviously, in the last couple of years with the Yaris as well last year with the 1, 2, 3, 4. So for some reason, it's always been an event that Toyota has succeeded on. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I can, I can say that in the... In the 80s and 90s, when we did very well, um, uh, it was down to down to a very diligent and and focused approach. Even even when Toyota came, Toyota as a team, Toyota Team Europe at that time, became a, a full fully fledged world championship team, which only really happened when they got the four wheel drive Celica. That's when they started to enter the the full championship. Up until then, they just did bit parts. They didn't. They never did a full championship. They would do seven or eight rallies a year tops, um, and not all of them necessarily WRC. I remember they came and did the Scottish Rally in 1986. Believe it or not, it, with the Group B, the Group B Celica, they came with Lars Eric Torp and Bjorn Waldegard. I uh, saw so that would probably be the next event after Safari Rally. They came to Scotland to do the Scottish Rally because they had to do X number of rallies for, for in their contract, and they came and did the Scottish Rally. How amazing was that for me? I just started sort of <laughs> full time with the team as a freelancer, 
Um, I, I know that sounds like a misnomer, but it wasn't. Um, the, uh, and, and they came and did the Scottish rally. It was fantastic. One of the fun things we did on that rally actually was worked out that the team manager, Henry Lydon at the time, could actually go from service point to service point by train. <laughs> around, <laughs> around, we could do at least two legs by train. Around the, when it ran around the northeast of Scotland, there was enough railway stations. The, the timetable wasn't good, but, but it was fun working out when we did all the map marking. In those days, you did map marking manually, and everybody got a full set of Ordnance Survey maps for the whole rally, all marked up manually. It was an amazing... That's another story, isn't it? Sorry. So we digressed away there. Um, why did they do so well in Safari Rally? Hard work um, and focus. It, 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 was, it was obviously important to do well, to advance the team, uh, and the team had a limited resource, so they focused on Safari Rally. And, and through the 90s, when they became that fully-fledged team, they didn't lose that focus because the value of winning Safari Rally was now embedded into the psychology of the manufacturer. It's Safari Rally, Toyota must be there, Toyota must be in the pack, in the lead. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I know that, obviously, there's always commercial pressure on on uh, on teams to to succeed and and push and do well, um, but um, I, I never ever saw that our, the, 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 all the senior uh, presidents in, in Toyota that, they came to, that came to the rallies, it was never full presidents like we're, like we're seeing now with Akio Toyota, but um, they, uh, they came and they, they, when, you, when you spoke to them, as they did, they would come and speak to all the team members. They were very, very personable, the guys that, that came and, and, and presided over the, the team. They, they had a very sanguine approach to the whole thing, very realistic. We know this is a sport. We know it's tough, but it's great that we're here and we're pushing and leading at the front. Anything can happen. You know, you can, you can hit a, 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 some wildlife with a car. You could be leading the rally by 10 minutes and, and, and catch, a, catch an impala or just, you know, catch a ditch that wasn't there during the recce. There's been a little bit of rain through or somebody's been working on the road. There's a ditch there. Nobody puts cones out or markers out for it. And you just rattle the car over that and it's done. So they understood that. They were realistic about it. But they, they always wanted us to do well in Safari. So the reason that we did well through the, through the early and mid-90s was absolutely purely because we worked hard at it. And, you know, at that time, so we were very dominant in the mid-80s. Then through the, the late part of the 80s, we, we, were, we were very good, but we didn't win anything. We didn't win 87, 88 or 89. That was the that was with the Supra. So the first year was normally aspirated Supra. The 80, 88 was the turbocharged Supra, and eighty nine was the turbocharged Supra. Uh, and then in nineteen ninety we came with the four wheel drive Celica, which had been very very fragile feeling car and very very uh, difficult to get it all organised and right. And you know we're struggling to make it fast and trying to get it X Y and Z. And you know the, the the car had the focus on the car was to get it quick. That was the whole focus of that car, was to be fast and take on take on uh, Lancia with their already established Delta. We started that car in the middle of 1988. Um, so we never took that to Kenya for two years, basically, because it, we felt it was too fragile. But we brought it out. Bjorn did a huge amount of testing. He wasn't doing the full series that year. He did all the testing. He, he forged that car and developed it here in Kenya in that same fashion that he had in 1986 when I first went with the Group B car with them. And lo and behold, we won that rally. We didn't win in 91. Lancia won 91. But I think we won again in 92, 93, 94 and 95. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, those were good years, but but we were up against good teams. I mean, it wasn't just a washover. We had to work hard at it every year, every time. You know, we had a pretty serious challenge, we felt, from Ford in, I'm not sure what year it was, but for some reason, when they came to the event, they came with a superb uh, Ford Sierra Cosworth. And I think it was the four, it was four-wheel drive Ford Sierra Cosworth. We felt it was the car to do this. They had Stig Blomqvist was the prime driver. Um, I think they only came with two cars. Uh, and they, but they prepared all the cars down in Mombasa for some reason because that's what they used to do back in the in the seventies. And then they had their mechanics drive the car. That well, two of the senior engineers drove the cars up the road from Mombasa to Nairobi. And uh, one of them got written off. 
I don't know whether they drove at night or whether it was during the day, but one of the drivers wrote, wrote, wrote Stig's car off. He ended up having to use a, an adapted recce car, which is already very oh, wow. tired. Recce test car, and the car fell apart during the rally. But that was, but that, again, it was a serious challenge. They just made a mistake. They did something silly. It was just 500 kilometres to drive from Mombasa to Nairobi. That was just a two-lane highway, and very often half of one lane was gone with a huge pothole. You couldn't drive up that road anything except carefully. There was yeah. years you could drive it, you could drive it flat out in a high ace van, and then the next year the road was gone and it was just potholes. The the difference in time you you could do Nairobi to Mombasa on a good year, you could do it in about four and a half to five hours in a van. Uh, on a bad year, it would take you ten to twelve hours to do it. Exactly the same road. <laughs> wow. It just and it wasn't Dear traffic; me. it was just the condition of the road. It would change so so vastly. Yeah. Wet or dry, That's incredible. Depended. Yeah, massive. So I think they won just because of. Absolute hard work, focus, and it was important to us. So, you know, um, and I know everyone said, oh, Toyota threw money at it, but actually it wasn't expensive because you just had five or six guys in Nairobi. Um, we had a workshop that was gifted to us by the importer, you know, or, or maybe we rented it. It wasn't a lot of money. I mean, we, we had that same workshop for many years, all the, all the years I was involved as a coordinator and a, a workshop manager here in Nairobi, and then finally as team manager. We kept that workshop all the way through until the end. We kept vehicles here. It, it just it wasn't expensive to, to compete. It wasn't. And we did all the testing with Avgas from the airport. You know, it was cheap. It was cheap in those days. Before you, That was before you were spending whatever it is, 10, 10 euros a litre on fuel. Yeah, you know, it was just Avgas, which was tax-free. You know, it's air, av aviation fuel here in Kenya at that time. It was tax-free. I think I was buying a two hundred liter drum of of, um, uh, what's it called? Hundred uh, LL, one hundred LL, Avgas. Uh, you get also get one hundred five LL here in Kenya at that time. I can't remember what I was paying a drum, but it was cheaper than pump fuel at that time. Wow, yeah, you see. I'm I'm quite glad you can't remember how much it costs because that would just make us realise how much inflation is hit the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's it was it was it was relatively cheap anyway. Um, um, so you know, it, it, testing wasn't expensive, and you know, we we didn't run helicopters during the the tests in the in the eighties. During the nineties, we did we did start to use helicopters on some of the tests test areas just as a safety tool, um, because we were spending so long here. But, but uh, again, it was local helicopters that are not as expensive as you think. And you're not doing that. You know, you'd have it for a whole day, but you'd only actually fly off three hours in, in a day. And it allows you to test at full speed. Well, compared to were the you, cost of a test road in Europe, it's actually cheap. Were you ever in those helicopters? I assume you must have yeah, been yeah, at some I point. Yeah, did, I did. I did um, there was one of the high-speed tests I did. So that we used to do a high-speed test before Christmas. This was in the uh, early-ish 90s. And I remember on one high-speed test, I did the helicopter all the way, and I, I think that was with, that was with Carlos. I did the high-speed test before Christmas. I think it was it. Oh, maybe it was no, it was it was Carlos. Maybe it wasn't a high-speed test. It was a second high-speed test that we did. We did with I think it was yeah. We did one in February as well because the the first high-speed test hadn't been so good. So I think it was it was Carlos. I remember doing a, a heck of a lot of it. I don't know if I did all of it or just most of it, but basically the whole route at rally speed, uh, but over the course of a week. And you just, you know you, you pick your time. To, you always try and do it exactly the same time as the rally, and you would put the sec pull the sections out and slot them together and do it that way. So you weren't doing the whole thing on full rally timetable, but you did the sections at, at, at full rally timetable. Um, so I did that with Carlos. Well, to close this out, George, because again, I'm looking mm. at our timer and somehow we've managed to kill almost an hour of time no, talking we've about... We've been talking 10 memories. minutes. We've not I even touched the on the event you yet. You never know. And this, this is what's mm. terrifying. But the, the question I want to ask you, and I'll be honest, potentially it's an awful question because I could probably predict the answer you're going to give me. But you've been to this rally, as you said, for over 20 times. You've done it in various different roles, from, as you say, starting as a mechanic to your sporting manager role, now to helping us cover it as media but you've never driven the rally, George. Now, I don't know if you, you still harbour plans to be a rally driver, but how much would you have loved to try at this rally? Uh, massively, massively, massively. I did get to drive the entire route once 
about about one and a half times around the route, the whole route. I did the whole route once properly, and then I, and we did some other sections twice. You know, maybe we did another yeah half a dozen sections twice. Maybe not not quite half the rally again. So that was a, that was on a photo shoot, pre Christmas photo shoot, that uh, the media team at Toyota wanted to do, and. Uh, uh, I got a phone call. It was it was Uwe Anderson's wife, Marion Bell Anderson. She wanted to do this photo shoot specifically to capture two rally cars together. Uh, but but it was just just prior to Christmas, and everybody else had gone home. Obviously, we had Ian I, Duncan. Ian I Duncan was going to say I, I already there. know the picture. You, I know the picture you're talking about now. But do continue. My my mind yeah. started working there. So yeah yeah. So basically. Um, we drove the entire route being followed by a helicopter um, as a two-car team. With, with We had Reinhard Klein there photographing, sometimes in the helicopter, sometimes on the ground. Sometimes we were going backwards and forwards uh, down sections of the route. Sometimes we looked off the route because we'd spotted the guys in the helicopter had spotted a nice bit of road that would make a better photograph. We found water at one point. There's a very famous poster photograph of two two Celica GT4s, the, the ST185s, uh, together on separate roads on a muddy section. Uh, that is at a place called, uh, well, that was on the Kidong Valley, uh, would you believe? Um, uh, just, um, uh, well, the backside of Suswa, coming up to what is now the, the new railway station below Kajabi on the escarpment. I know exactly where it is, where that photograph was done, because I was driving the second car and I drove the entire route. Many of the sections were driven uh, relatively competitively and I got to just follow Ian. But I was, I was obviously following one or two kilometres behind just to let the dust die down. No pace notes. Um, my co-driver was alternately a sound guy who was a guy called Bernd. And I can't remember his last name. He was a German sound engineer. And when it wasn't him, it was Marion Bell Anderson, Uwe Anderson's uh, wife. She sat in the car with me and she did she did more than half the route with me, um, including we had one massive, massive moment on the on the main <laughs> road going up, going up to uh, going up towards Nakuru after Naivasha. And it's the bit of road that we still drive on Safari Rally between Naivasha and Nakuru. And it's just before a place called Gilgil. And I was following Ian, and I was only maybe a kilometre behind him. Ian went past a line of cars coming the other way. And after he passed, I was, I was ready, thinking it might happen. But we were doing about 220 kph. And my tattoo, or a, a pickup, pulled out from behind a truck. Saw me coming, because I had the lights on, the wing lights on. Tried to pull back in and got a tank slapper on. And I had no idea whether this guy could have gone off the road and, and there was a, a bit of a drop down off the road. So he didn't want to go there. He was trying to avoid it. And it was the, the old railway bridge, it's just, it's just south of the old railway bridge. So it's a very easy place to identify. It's embellished in my brain. And I watched <laughs> this guy doing his tank slappers. And I thought, well, I can brake and go off the road and we'll survive. And I was, I was, I, I, I was on the brakes, hit the brakes. And just after I hit the brakes, I realised we were getting very close to him at this point. I could I could cut off the road, but there was a risk that the guy was going to go that way. But I realised he'd just actually started to work his way across towards the ditch. So I went in between him and the, and the truck and I went through that gap about, you know, 180 to 200 kph. And, you know, it was quite cool about it. Braked, the car went drifted a little bit, obviously, and, and sideways. But I came off the brakes and just steered for the gap that you could see was going to be there. You know, the, the timing just set itself and I went through the gap. Marion Marian thought that was wonderful. I said, Marion, sorry about that. She said, George, I can't believe you. I can't believe that you avoided it. I said, well, I've still got the... At that point, I hadn't driven a rally car for a couple of years, but the instincts were still good. Um, I think they're, they're, <laughs> you'll know yourself about rally driver instinct. I think they stay with you forever. Um, and anyway, I used them on that occasion. But, but, but driving the route, you know, we drove the most incredible sections. We drove down the Kerio Valley, which I still recall as one of my favourite experiences. Um, coming out of Eldoret, we'd stopped the night in Eldoret, and uh, we had to drive down towards a place called, where is it, um, Nieru, Nieru, and you then drop down into the Kerio Valley, down past the big fluor spar mines where they used to get the, the stuff that goes in fluorescent lights. There's big settlement ponds and an airfield down there. 
and we drove that whole section and then they realised they realised that they'd seen um, the helicopter had spotted a great runway so we drove back up the road section about another 60 k's back up to the start of the section drove down it again onto this uh, gravel runway airport runway that had this massive in this massive gorgeous rather narrow Kerio Valley but it's about half a mile deep it's a huge gouge in the earth uh, the top of the, 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 the top the top of the valley is about 8,000 feet um, and the bottom is about you know uh, five and a half uh, maybe 6,000 feet something like that a long way down and you just drop down through it uh, I always remember that driving that section with Ian because when I got to the end he couldn't believe that I turned up just two minutes after him and he said <laughs> he said I've just driven through that with pace notes and he said, you're only, well, I think, I think it was his co-driver said, I was three minutes behind him at the end of, I don't know, 90 kilometres. And he said, you know, George, your pace, if, if you were entered in the rally, he said, you'd definitely be top five here. It just made it worse for me, honestly. Don't tell me that. <laughs> um, don't, don't make yeah, it worse. You don't need me. to know that, do you? You don't need to know don't that. Need to, don't uh, need to know that. And I, and I was driving without pace notes. But of course, I was used to, I mean, I... I mean, I, I, okay, I did the Swedish rally, Thousand Lakes Rally, but rallies in Belgium to learn pace notes. But all my rallying in UK, it was always on blind stages. So, you know, you've got that instinct is not bad. I, I, I will confess to being lucky a couple of times. And, you know, you'd be lying if you said you weren't. Cause no, I know no, no. Don't, don't tell the world no, that, don't tell the world no, that no, George. No, honestly, oh, no, honestly <laughs> we, got, we got lucky. We got lucky a few times. A few times you, you misread, you misread a, 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 a water splash. And... Um, you know, a, a drift, they're called drifts, dry, dry riverbeds or, or um, what they call drifts or, or just washaways. Um, the, the washaways could be deadly. The drifts could be equally as bad, actually. The, the, sometimes they're concrete in the middle. So in the middle of a gravel road and someone's made a, a concrete, a concrete a plinth through a riverbed with quite sharp edges. And it's maybe, it's maybe only about 20 feet across. If you hit that at 70 miles an hour, you, and, and you know, be 45 degrees down into the river and 45 degrees out, you could go right across and land, and that would be like landing into a, a concrete wall face. So you could, you could, it was quite dangerous. But we we drove the whole route that year, and it was it was just amazing. And we were all up Eldoret, we went into the Cheringanis, uh, across to Marillel, uh, you know, round Lake Baringo. We did all that. Oh, just amazing. We didn't come back through the Cheringanis. It's a little, it, it's a very twisty forested area. It's like it's it's full. Uh, Rainforest up on the Aberdares on the on the east side of the Aberdare Hills, and that's rainforest. But but you can't get a helicopter into film, so there was no point in doing that section. Nah. So that was the bit that was the bit that we missed that year. It was a shorter section, but uh, we did all round Nan UK up towards Marillal. Just amazing, and of course down it's to the south it's as sounds well. stunning. It sounds stunning. You, yeah. you've, you've painted so you that beautifully. So I have driven. I have driven Safari Rally route in a Group A rally car, albeit just a recce test car, so it wasn't a full spec engine. We were probably about 40 horsepower down because the car would only pull 220 um, on the gravel. That's all it would pull. And the, the full rally cars would do 230 at that time. They were geared a little bit higher. So um, it wasn't wasn't full spec, but it was still pretty amazing. I was going to say, yeah, about, I, I, I I, as an alternative... Hours. You yeah. still take it, don't you? It's not quite there, but it's it's a close second to do. It was it was a very close second, event. better than you could ever have wished for, and I and I always appreciate that uh, that that Uwe Anderson allowed me to do it, but he did he did he did get me to phone me before I went. He said, George, uh, he said this is only a photo shoot. You know that? I said, I know that, Uwe. Um, I said, but you know we're, we're driving on a route for a photo shoot. He said, you know anything can happen. It's you know it's. He said, George, he said, that's one of my recce cars. It will not be crashed. So there was no pressure. <laughs> the, boss, the boss on the phone telling you, I want you to drive my rally car. I want you to make a good photo shoot. Don't crash it. There's no excuse. Don't crash it. Categorically, don't crash it. So, I, I mean, in, in, a, in a strange sort of way, I've had the same pressure as a lot of the top drivers. That's actually that's yeah. unfair, of me to, it's unfair of me to claim that, actually. I apologise to everyone for even claiming such a thing, but it felt like that at the time. <laughs> So, that's perfect yeah. that is yeah. perfect unfortunately as great as that is i think we do have to bring this to a close because we're, we're over an hour and george it's closing up to 11 p.m your time so you'll need to get yourself well rested oh, for the rally week i'm basically ahead. i'm basically here on holiday this year um um luke 100 basically on holiday we, we've, we've done the little bit of freight that we had to do has been done 
I've got a tiny little bit to do tomorrow up at Naivasha and we are going to go up to Lake Beringo, which is as good as it might sound it is. So you're just slightly above the equator. The equator's just above, uh, above Nakuru and then it's about another 60, 70, maybe 80 kilometres up to Lake Beringo. We used to stay in the Lake Beringo Lodge, which is smack in the middle right opposite the, the uh, uh, Kokaway Island, I think it's called. And um, so it's easy to see where it was. And I say that because the lake level, Lake Beringo, is fed by springs. There are rivers come into it, but it doesn't rain much up there. You're just on the, just below the scrub desert. Um, but it's spring fed and it's a fresh, a freshwater lake. Um, and the level has risen, so I think it's risen about like 40, 50 feet. And it rose during a drought, drought, drought period, not a wet period. Nobody knows why, but the lake level historically oh as much as the, the history is available, has been known to go up and down. Where, where we're going, Lake Naivasha, where, um, uh, if, if you look at uh, where Naivasha is itself, is, is above the lake level, the town, and there's all um, uh, sea cliffs, you would call them, uh, where the, the lake, Lake Naivasha, historically, on historic, the historic records, Lake Naivasha used to go all the way up to, up to Nakuru, Lake Nakuru. So, uh, I mean, that used to be a, 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 an 80, 90 kilometre long lake. Um, and it's now shrunk down to the size it is. And, and, and the level has, the last uh, five years, again, the level of that came up uh, extraordinarily high and covered a whole load of farms. Um, and again, not because of any rain, apparently. So it's very, very interesting what nature does to us. Um, there you go. So, so you can it's, see It sounds place. like a more interesting day than what I've got planned. As much as I love my job at Dirtfish, that does sound... Yeah. A little bit more beautiful, a little bit more romantic, a little bit more sort of adventurous. Um, so you made me you incredibly on? jealous you... now. Good. Are you working at the on? weekend or are you are you having a quiet one? This weekend, I am <laughs> meant to be off when this podcast comes out, but you never with this job, you never truly off, are you? <laughs> the rally Indeed, world keeps not. turning. So there's but no events this weekend for you specifically. Well, I'm going out no, to but... recce the recce the route on Saturday and Sunday, possibly Monday and Tuesday as well little bits of it because I just like to see the whole route so that I can talk authoritatively and with inside knowledge uh, when we're talking about the event and uh, and feeding back and hopefully making a nice show for everybody. Well, there I'm you go. I'm quite excited you, about it, yeah. If you would like to see the fruits of George's labour, you know where to go throughout next week. Dirtfish.com is the place to be. The YouTube channel will have all of the videos, previews, analysis and day reviews of course dirtfish live center when the rally is underway for literally everything behind the scenes to what is going on update information and all of the things that our wonderful team is getting up to on the ground and of course there'll be spin the rally pod to get yourself in the mood for the rally as well george from all the rally fans listening thank you so much for your stories and your time we have to do this again we threaten to do lots of sort of episodes like this with George and never quite get around to it. We've committed to this one, but I think we have to do more, mate. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm loving every minute of it. I apologise for people if I've rambled on too long about uh, different things, but I feel like I've only scratched the surface, Luke. Can we do one every day for the next week? <laughs> I think, I think honestly, I think I've got the content if we don't bore the crap out of everybody. I don't, I don't even doubt that for a second. But for now, thank you, George, and thank you very much to you for listening.